<clears throat> Let me go ahead and invite you to um, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 11. We'll read through verse 20. Now, the author of Hebrews has begun to show us how Jesus is our high priest. We looked at that last week. How is Jesus a great high priest? And you saw, if you were here, if you weren't, I'll tell you anyway, at the very end of chapter 5, verse 10, he makes this little comment. He says, Jesus Christ is a high priest like Melchizedek, or in his language, after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to read. Uh, not we're, yeah, we're going to read at the end of, of our reading tonight, verse 20. The same sort of thing, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We get a little snippet each time. But he doesn't explain it until chapter 7. Next week, the author of Hebrews has something he has to say before he can tell you about Melchizedek. What is it? Well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5, we'll read through verse 20, chapter 6. Let's hear God's word and let's seek to receive it. Let's not treat it like it's simply another Sunday evening that we kind of just go through this. But let's treat it as precious and living and active, which is what it is. The author of Hebrews and the Lord give us this. About this, again referring to Christ the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since she's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. It's then to be, to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I'll bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's end the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of it. Oh Lord, help us. Help us as those who are children, those who are immature, those who have become dull of hearing. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that want to know you more. Give us your presence. We ask this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, why does he wait? I mean, why does the author wait to tell you about the weird, mysterious Melchizedek? Why does he wait to kind of go into this detail until next week? Why does he spend all this time on chapter 6? Well, he tells you right there. He tells you, verse 11. He tells us why he's going to do what he's doing here. He tells us, really, the problem. About this, we have much to say. I'd love to tell you all about it. It's hard to explain, however. Here's the issue. Since you have become dull of hearing, you need somebody to teach you again. He says, look, here's the issue, guys. You need to go back to elementary school. You need to go back to school. You need to relearn the Jesus alphabet. I'm not a, a huge steak person. Maybe y'all love your steaks. I don't know. But I do recall as a young child, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what an ounce was. I said, hey, Father, could I have a 16-ounce steak, a good ribeye? I was told as a little, you know, six-year-old or whatever it was, no, you can't. Your appetite isn't big enough. Your tummy wouldn't be too enough for it. And that's the basic Lesson, that's the language of our text tonight. You cannot have the ribeyes of the gospel. You cannot eat the steak. You cannot eat the good feast of the gospel. Why? The reason is not because you're young Christians. The reason is not because you haven't been Christians very very long. The reason is not your capacity. When I was six years old, it was my capacity. I had a childlike appetite and body. The reason's not your capacity. It's not that your souls are childlike. The problem is that you are a spiritual adult. You have the uh, equipment, if you will. You have the wherewithal. You have the capacity, but we're behaving like a child. Spiritual adults, but behaving like a child. We're stuck with the elementary doctrine of Christ. He says in verse 12, you need milk. 
You need milk because you have become dull of hearing. You've become sluggish. There's sluggishness about you. We need the ABCs of the gospel, but we ought, we ought, verse 12, to be able to teach others the whole thing. You ought to be able to make the ribeyes, to cook the ribeyes of the gospel and prepare them for people. You ought to be able to do this, but you can. Notice he's not talking here to pastors who are trained at seminary. He's talking here to every Christian. Adults in Christ, but spiritually sick. Adults in Christ, but spiritually sick. Think about it. When you go to a good doctor, they don't just do the test results. They don't just take your temperature. They don't simply rely upon what the MRI says. They ask basic questions like, how's your appetite? How's your appetite? And when you lose your appetite... What happens? You're only able to take liquids. It's a sign that you've become sluggish. Parents, you know with this with your kids. When they don't eat, you know it's a problem. You're only able to take milk products. A sign that you've become ill. And the whole point of this section is that the author so desperately wants you to see Jesus Christ in his glory like Melchizedek, greater than Melchizedek. He wants you to understand just how beautiful and amazing Jesus Christ is. He wants to use Melchizedek, that shadowy figure in the book of Genesis who appears to Abraham out of the blue and then disappears. But he can't right now. His problem is he can't because we've become sluggish. Like the proverb says, the sluggard reaches for the bowl, but doesn't have the energy to move his hand back to his mouth. You reach for the bowl, but you don't have the energy to move your hand back to your mouth. That's the picture here of the church of God. It's the picture here of the people of God. I mean, think about it. You get the glories of Jesus Christ here every week. just pouring into your bowl. I recall when I was a child, I guess this is the child example sermon. I recall when I was a child, I would, I would love Lucky Charms. But I particularly love the marshmallows. This is maybe common for kids, more than the little oat things that come in there. So what would I do? I would make sure to pour out a lot so I could get a lot of marshmallows. I would pick around everything else and eat, eat the marshmallows. I'm not saying it was something you should copy by no means. But the point is that I had to pour a lot to get it in there, get it up in there that I liked. And here's the thing about God. He pours a lot into you. He pours a lot into your bowl every single week. He pours it through the preaching of the word. He pours it through the prayers of the saints. He pours it through your friends. He pours it through your family. He pours it week in and week out. By his spirit, he gives the feast, the gospel into the bowl. And you reach your hand out. But because you're sick, because you're sluggish, you can't bring your hand back to your mouth and feed yourself. This is very possible, friends. You can see it in other people. You can see it in yourself, perhaps. And he says, actually, this creates a real red flag. Verse 14. He says, solid food is for the mature. And then he defines who the mature are. He gives one particular quality about the mature Christian. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
You see, the tragedy is when you become sluggish, when you become a, um, an immature Christian, when you become someone who needs milk, dull of hearing, the real tragedy is not just that you don't get the stuff. It's that you can't discern the good from the bad. You can't discern the good from the bad. You lose the ability to discern what's true and beautiful and good and glorious. You're like the kids. Again, I apologize. So many illustrations of kids tonight. Like the kids who, who get expensive gifts at Christmas, but spend most of the day playing with the wrapping paper. You're like the cats that we have. You get them a nice toy. What do they want to do? They want to fit in the box that comes from Amazon. They can't, no, they can't think between what's, you know, what's nice and what's not nice. And the tra- that's okay for a cat, but it's a tragedy for a human being made in God's image. When, when the kid gets the expensive toy and they just want to play with the wrapping paper. We have not distinguished between the value of the gift and the value of the wrapping you got at the sale in January. And this pastor, the author of Hebrews, says, because I love you, I want to help you. So he takes them through kind of three stages. He begins in in chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 3, with an exhortation. He described the issue, and now he moves to the exhortation. Here's the exhortation. Don't be stuck with gospel ABCs. Don't be stuck with the Jesus ABCs. What are the ABCs? What's the elementary school of of, of the gospel of Jesus? He tells you, by the way, look at verse 1, chapter 6, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, verse 2, instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, Resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Some of that makes pretty obvious sense. Repentance, faith, instructions about washing, likely he refers here to baptism. He says, look, a basic Christian understands something of what baptism means. The laying on of hands, again, likely referring here to the welcoming of new members of the church. We would give the right hand of fellowship. They would usually have laid hands on them. These are the fundamentals. These are the ABCs of Christianity, repentance, faith, baptism, membership, a future resurrection, eternal judgment. Now, let me be very clear, though. Let me be very clear here. The author's not saying, the Bible is not saying you ever get beyond the ABCs. He's not saying you ever uh, progress to a Christianity where you never repent or ha- never have faith or never believe in divine judgment. No, that, that's not his point. There is no Christianity that exists without these fundamentals, but his call is simple. His exhortation is clear. Are you building on them? Are you building on the ABCs? Are you growing on the basis of these fundamentals into a strong Christian? Are you growing on the basis of the ABCs into a vibrant Christian? Because he says there's so much more. There's so much more to know. He wants you to look at the menu of the gospel at the restaurant of God and say to God, give me the 16 ounce ribeye. I want it. Show me how great Jesus Christ is. Show me his glory. But his concern is actually. You don't care about that. 
You don't want it. You don't want Jesus Christ in all of his beauty displayed to you. You don't care about Christ as the glorious high priest. It's the way Matthew Henry comments. Dull listeners make it difficult to be a good preacher. Let me be very clear here. The opposite's also true. Dull preachers make it difficult to be a good listener. And you can talk about that afterwards if you want to. But the concern here of the author of Hebrews is, I can't do it for you. I can't transform you from a slug, a sluggy Christian, into a peppy Christian. I can't transform your appetite from malnourished into ravenous for Jesus Christ. He says you need to build on the foundation. He says the real problem here is that you are like Benjamin Button. You are regressing to a baby. You are becoming an infant. Now, let's realize here that this actually, there actually is a great challenge to this. Because there is a temptation in our day to actually object to this very statement. To object to the idea that Christians should seek to be mature. There's a popular understanding, a very common understanding, that all we need are the gospel basics. Just give me the basics of the gospel. That's all I need. Just give me it. I don't want anything too complicated. Don't don't go into too much detail about Jesus. Just give me the basics. Just stick with the ABCs, and that's good enough to be a great Christian. It's very popular in a day where there are maybe fewer real Christians in the world, in America at least. And you want to get all the Christians together, and so you make it as easy as possible to be a Christian. But friends, if you only have the letters A and B and C, it's going to be very hard to do much with the English language. You need all the letters in the alphabet. And the same thing is true here. If you only have the foundational truths, if you only have the gospel ABCs, can you be saved? Of course you can be saved. That's always the question I get when discussing something like this. Can you, can, can you be saved? Yes, you can be saved. But are you content with that? Are you happy to remain at that immature level? Don't you want to know Christ more? Don't you want to love him more deeply? Don't you want to be able to speak the gospel language more fluently? Don't you want to be able to eat the gospel meal more deeply, enjoy it more richly? You need all the letters in the alphabet. You need, as Christ commands his his disciples in the Great Commission, teach them to obey all, not just a teensy bit, but all of what I've commanded you. Exhortation. Second, verse 4 to verse 9, the author of Hebrews moves further. He gives a warning. He says, look, exhortation. And then he says, hold on now. Um, I'm not just giving you a command. I'm telling you there's something really serious here about this. He says, if you don't do this, something's going to happen. You're going to regress away from Jesus Christ. What he calls turning away. Verse 6, what he calls fallen away. He says the danger of going back. You understand, of course, that you never stand still. You never stand still as a Christian. You're never in neutral. You're never in park as a Christian. 
You're always going one way or another. You're always progressing towards Christ or regressing away from him. And beginning in verse 4, the author says, you can have many incredible spiritual experiences in your past and fall away. I'll just read verse 4. You can taste the heavenly gift. You can share in the Holy Spirit. You can taste the goodness of the word of God. You can taste the power of the age to come. You can do all these things and then have fallen away. Now, it's easy to get caught up in what does this mean about once saved, always saved? What does it mean about having salvation? Does it mean I can lose my salvation? We've heard it before in the letter. And I'll tell you what I told you then. Same, same reality, same answer. Yes, once saved, always saved. Absolutely, yes. God preserves his saints. Yes, his saints persevere. Those who are saved persevere. Yes, but the question's not, are those called by Christ, held by Christ? Of course they are held by Christ. That's not the question. The question is, were you called by Christ to begin with? The question is, were you saved? Not if you're saved, what happens then? The question is, were you saved? And he says, the evidence that you were saved is that God's salvation is evident in your life. The evidence that you were saved is that God's salvation is evident there. He says, it's, it's possible to share in all these things. I don't have time to go through each one of them, but to give you some, some instances of them. You can go out of church tonight. You can say, that was a good sermon. I could taste how good it was. You can sense God's power. You can see his mighty works. And if this idea is a challenge, you can come to the Lord's table. You can taste of the heavenly gift. You can have the light go on in your mind and you can be enlightened and say, oh, I understand something about God now. My life. I, I didn't realize I was this type of person. Huh. And the Bible uses several, but one particular person to illustrate Hebrews 6, verse 4 and following. It is the most accurate description of Judas Iscariot we have. The most accurate description of Judas in the Bible. He had tasted the power of the age to come. He had shared in the heavenly gift so much so that his, the disciples, his friends, they trusted him to hold the money. They trusted him to be the treasurer of the little, their band. He had integrity. He, 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 they thought, right? He was around Jesus Christ. He was casting out demons. He was preaching the word. He was doing all these great Christian things. And in fact... They trusted him so much that when he left the Last Supper, they thought he was going on a work of mercy ministry. But Judas was never a Christian. He had many spiritual experiences, but never Christian ones. It reminds me of the great quote by Spurgeon. He once said, most of the experience of Christians is not Christian experience. Much of the experience of Christians is not Christian experience. Or if you need more illustrations, think of Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. How many of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress talk about all of their experiences? Oh, hi, Christian. I, I came by a different route. How did you get here? I came this way. I just jumped over. 
They never came by the way of the cross. They never had their burden removed that way. And so what happens, they hold up, verse 6, they hold up the Son of God to contempt and their own harm. You see, friends, it's possible to have all the experiences of being at church, all the experiences of Christian service, all the gifts, all the talents. You can have a history, a family history. You can have a burning in your bosom. You can have great community, but never come to the ABCs of the gospel, repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus. And just to prove it to you, look at verse 9. That's why the author moves on to say in verse 9, we feel sure of better things in your case, beloved. We feel sure of better things. What are the better things? Things that belong to salvation. You look through the list in verse 4 and following, and you realize faith in Jesus is never mentioned there. Radical turning to the Lord, repentance, seeking his forgiveness, never mentioned there. Savoring God's grace and pardon for your evil, never mentioned there. There's none of the basics of faith and repentance in Christ. You can have all the experience with all the pep talks. You can have all the warm fuzzies. You can have all the intellectual ahas. You can master all the prudent principles of a good family or a good marriage. You can do the wisest financial steward out there but never have the ABCs of the gospel of grace. In the story of uh, Robert Robinson, if you look at Come Thou Fount, which we just sang, you'll realize he is the author. 1758, I believe, is the date you have there. You know his story? He had written the hymn many years before. He was traveling one day in a carriage, that's what they did in those days, the youth carriages. There was a young girl opposite him. She was humming this tune, tune we sang, same tune. And Robert Robinson asked her, young gal, do you, uh, you like the tune, huh? She loves it. She's oh, it's a great, I, I love my favorite, my favorite tune, my favorite, 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 favorite hymn. He said, I wrote it. She was impressed, of course. And then he said, I would give anything, I would give all that I had to be in the position I was when I first wrote it. I'll give anything I have, all that I have, to be where I was when I wrote that hymn. You see, when you're in that position, when you know that you're not pursuing the Lord, we do two things. When you know you're like Robert Robinson, and you know that, wow, you had a great time back then, but not now. You do, you do two things. On the one hand, you say, I've had great experiences with the Lord. I've had great experiences in the church. Let me tell you about that one mission trip I had. Let me tell you about that one morning when the sunrise was so beautiful. Let me tell you about the youth retreat I went on when I was 15 years old. Let me tell you about the Sunday school class I went to. That one sermon the prayer vigil we had. Let me tell you about all my experiences. And what do you leave out? You leave out Jesus Christ. You leave out faith in him. You leave out repentance by his spirit. And the other way, that's the one way we handle immaturity. The other way we handle spiritual immaturity is by saying, I'm just backsliding. That's all. It's not great. It's not great, but I'm only backsliding. It's only a little bump in the road. 
we lose sight of the very fact that the author of Hebrews has pointed out here that our powers of discernment are sluggish. We are not capable of making the distinction between spiritual backsliding and spiritual apostasy that is outright abandonment of faith. Because all abandonment of Jesus Christ begins where? It begins with backsliding. The author of Hebrews sets forth not just a command, but this serious warning that we may not become. He uses the illustration, verse 8, he uses the illustration of a land that, you know, could produce a great crop, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. He says, I don't want that to be you, beloved. I don't want you to be people. I don't want you to be a field that just chokes out the word of God like the parable of the sower. And all you would have left are just pure experiences like the froth on the waves. Like the frothy part of the Coke as you pour it out and it gets all fizzy. That's all you have apart from Jesus Christ. Wave froth, Coke froth, experiences without him. And yet he doesn't end there, of course. The beautiful thing about the the author of Hebrews is it doesn't end with a warning. You get verse 9 to 11, and really then 13 to 20, both giving you something similar. He gives wonderful encouragement, exhortation, warning, encouragement. As a good pastor, this man knows that some will hear his exhortation to maturity. Some will hear the warning of vain experience, and tender hearts will start to say, is it I? Is this me? It could be me. We read in verse 9, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. I'm sure of better things for you. Isn't this what you do? I mean, you, you talk, you, you have your lunchtime coffee dates. You have your uh, times when you sit down with a Christian brother, Christian sister. They're struggling with the Bible. They're struggling with their faith. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? What do you do? Well, if you're an actual friend, you sit down with them and you say, well, look at your love of the church. Look at your love of the brethren. Look at your love of Jesus Christ. Look at the way you trust him. I can see something in you that is so deep that you are blind to it right now. You're just focused on all your sins and all your problems. You're missing the ways Jesus Christ is working in you. Because they love the Lord Jesus. They love serving him. And that's what the author points out. He says, I want you, verse 12, to become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so in these last seven verses, he gives three reasons for encouragement. He says, first, that in God's heart, there is an unchangeable, unshakable love. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, Surely I will bless you. This is what we've been looking at in the whole book of Genesis. Abraham's life, Isaac's life, Jacob's life. It's the same promise that God always repeats over and over again. It's his unchangeable, unshakable love. And yet second, the author points out there is something impossible for God to do. If you ever have anybody ask you, is there something impossible for God to do? Yes. Here's at least one thing. 
It's impossible for God to make a promise and then lie about it. It's impossible for God to make a promise and then not not go through with it. He promised. He promised to bless Abraham. He promised to multiply Abraham. And that's why he swears it by himself. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. You need encouragement to hold fast. You have God himself. What more do you need? But, but he gives you a third reason, not just God's love that they can't be shaken, not just, not just God's uh, promise, you can't lie about it. But third, as God's people, you have an anchor tied to Jesus Christ. You have an anchor that's tied to Jesus Christ. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You get to go into the penthouse with Jesus Christ and you're tied to him forever. So you see, friends, if God's promised to bless you and you're anchored to Jesus, it doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter if the world is filled with devils. God is able to save you to the uttermost. But the real question is, how do you know if these encouragements are for you or not? How do you know if these encouragements are for you or if you're on the other side of the coin? It's very simple. The gospel ABCs, trust and obey. Trust and obey in Jesus Christ, for there's no other way to be happy in him. Have you drifted in the danger zone? Have you been redlining your faith? Has your heart stopped responding anytime you hear Jesus and you just kind of grow cold to that? Anytime he's lifted up as the savior and not just as kind of some, you know, nice guy, some guru. Do you prefer other subjects? I mean, does does politics warm your heart more than the glory of the cross of Christ? Listen to the exhortation. Listen to the warning here. Do not drift away. Long to know more of him. And then next week, now he's able to say, you are ready to talk about Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So where are you tonight? Are you putting your hand in the bowl? God's gospel given to you constantly. Sunday school this morning with Rusty. This evening, morning services, Wednesday, other times throughout the week. Christ held out to you in the bowl of the gospel exposition. But has your hand come back? That's the real question. Has your hand come back from the bowl to gobble up the goodness of Christ? Take him. Take him and be satisfied with Christ himself. And yet as he satisfies you, never be content with him but be discontent that you don't have more of him. That holy discontentment that Jeremiah Burroughs talks about. He says there's a rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's a great book, by the way. I'd encourage it. You'd read through it. And he says there's a holy discontentment that you don't have more of Christ. Let's long for that. And yet be encouraged that until we get more, he is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you care about us enough to give us this exhortation. You care about your people enough to warn us. We pray that we would have ears to hear what your word says. That we would not grow sluggish, but rather take heart, having that sure and steady anchor of our soul in Jesus Christ himself. Feed us tonight. 
that we may serve you, not just with a few doctrines, a few beliefs, but with the whole shebang of Christianity, the whole, all of Christ, the whole of him, all week long until we meet again. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.